Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Thomas, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Great to be on the show. Maybe maybe there are plenty of Thomas in this world, so I will be a bit more explicit. It is Thomas Alomas from Sports Tech World Series. Today we have the pleasure of receiving Clint. Hi, Clint. It's a pleasure of being here. Hi, how are you going? Coming directly from New York from the NBA. Hi, Jason. How are you doing today? Hey, JB. Doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. My name is Alison Liu, and I've been at the San Francisco 49ers for almost five and a half years. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? I'm great, JB. Great to be on. Thank you very much for the invitation. Hi, everyone. I'm Barry, and I've been working in sport, media, technology, and digital for a long time now, more than 20 years. My name is Alison Liu, and I've been at the San Francisco 49ers for almost five and a half years. The member-inclusive menu is an initiative um, that we are super But we were super proud to sort of execute successfully this year uh, amongst not only our business strategy team, but, you know, it took our stadium operations team, it took our partnerships team, our sales team, our service team, our marketing team, everybody in the organization to roll out an initiative that was as big as what it was. Um, so the member inclusive menu was a benefit that was exclusively for season ticket members, and it included stadium favorite foods um, and non-alcoholic beverages as a part of their admission to the 49ers games. Um, and you know, no other team has, has, has offered something for a benefit of this size and scale that required, you know, educate fan education with how the technology worked behind it too, because mm-hmm. we were, we, we used um, our app. Um, it was, it was a, technology powered by venue next to to the to verify whether or not as someone who is holding an eligible ticket for that for that program and so you would, a fan would go up to the kiosk they would order and they would use their phone to scan a qr code that qr code would automatically be connected to their ticket and it would say like yes this person deserves um you know four free items or no this person you know bought on the secondary market therefore we're going to charge this person for four items um so yeah i think like the, if you think about how many people are in our stadium, right? Like 60, 65,000 people are in our stadium. Um, a lot of them are season ticket members, you know, about 85% are season ticket members or they got their tickets transferred from a season ticket member, feeding all those people, uh, you know, within like a 15 minute time frame at halftime. It's just it's a huge undertaking for our stadium. And so we're super proud to have uh, executed that program this year. So the menu was literally about menu attached to food. It was an in-stadium mm-hmm. experience. It was nothing beyond stadium. It wasn't like a mm-hmm. complete user journey. Yeah, it was mostly focused on the food experience in the stadium um, because, you know, historically that aspect of game day is not very well received. You know, like there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of research that says most people have some type some type of problem when it comes to ordering food or their food experience at the stadium. And so we were thinking about ways to solve that problem 
Um, and you know, this is, this was the solution that we came up with. Funny that you're saying that from a U.S. perspective, because the great European experience of going to this venues at the U.S. is that the, the food service is so much better because the <laughs> Europe are so bad, but then yeah. you keep improving on it. Is is uh, it's funny? Yeah, I didn't want to comment on that, but that's that's definitely right. But I was wondering, is there any research? I mean, what was what make you execute that kind of program? Was it something where you said, like, okay, we need to improve our game day or what, what, where does right. it come from, more or less? Like, yeah. Um, so the idea came from years and years of survey data. Sometimes my ticket goes for cheaper next to me when it's sold on a secondary market. Like, what am I, what benefit mm-hmm. am I getting by signing up for you know all ten home games in the season? Um, another one was the food experience, right? Like the food experience just wasn't super positive. And so we thought that the member inclusive menu could be a good solution to combine these two, right? Like only season ticket members are able to get it. And then, um, you know, it's improving the food value as well, because it's part of the ticket um, when you when you sign up for, to be a season ticket member. I know it's not the topic, but what are the benefits of being a season ticket holder beyond the, the venue experience? Are, are, are you guys working on that or it's specific you you guys are specifically working for the uh, on the at venue experience with your team yeah so the member inclusive menu um was the main benefit that was sort of driven from the business strategy side even though you know it took like all a lot of our uh the rest of the departments in the organization as well um the other benefits are probably more typical to the other benefits that you get from being a season team member or sports team right like you have exclusive access to certain events um pictures on the field um, you know, your own dedicated rep when it comes to troubleshooting your tickets or even just your ex- experience, season ticket member gifts, like you get to select which gifts you want, those types of benefits. That's- Thomas, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Great to be on the show. Yeah, maybe maybe there are plenty of Thomas in this world, so I will be a bit more explicit. It is Thomas Alomas from Sports Tech World Series. Should sports develop actionable NFTs and how they should do it and what, why NFTs matter and how we should approach it if, if we are a right holder or even an entrepreneur? Well, I think the short answer is, is yes, they, they should with the caveat that it depends on the needs of your sports organization. I think we, we fall into trouble when we start to group sports all together as this amorphous blob in terms of, of rights holders and sports properties in the same way we get into trouble when we group NFTs, crypto, fan tokens, yeah. Web 3.0 in general. I mean, there's there's a lot of nuances there. So for, for larger sporting organisations, if an NFT is a way that you can further engage and connect with your fans with the added benefit of monetization, then then go for it. I think that's something that's there. If you are a smaller, smaller, much smaller um, rights holder, um, I think it needs to be. I would say don't rush into it. I think it needs to be better thought out. Not to say that big organisations are rushing into it, but at the end of the day, mm. it needs to be part of a broader strategy. It can't be seen as something that sits off to the side. So the example that I use is. Um, uh, Speaking with Dr. Julian Tan, who's formerly the um, head of digital initiatives and esports at Formula One, and he talked about mm-hmm. esports in Formula One. It wasn't just something that they kind of tapped on. Um, it was actually part of a broader strategy of how do we engage our fans. 
Um, fans, yeah. And I think NFTs as, as an emerging technology, as the kind of hottest buzzword that's happening here, it's going, well, how does it fit into your broader fan engagement strategy? So where does that, where does that sit? Um, and if you're not doing things in collectibles or digital collectibles to begin with, then just rushing into NFTs and minting a whole bunch of NFTs in this space when you don't really know if you've got demand um, can can be really quite a dangerous proposition. Um, mm. My personal preference is for actionable N- NFTs. I think the example, um, so that rather than just it being a digital collectible, essentially a bit of art, there is something that yep. is linked to that, other benefits. Um, with a physical with a physical reward or something um, not I mean, necessarily it, yeah it, it can be it can be if that makes sense I think um, I think again it's it's a bit of a obfuscating answer but if it if it actually makes sense or, or a small part of it I mean the Australian open with their their nfts that they did um, at the recent AO uh, they mm-hmm had one element that was physical, basically the, if a championship. So that what they did is, for anyone that doesn't know, they split up the court into little 10 by 10 squares of the court and then if a match-winning uh, point landed on that, your little section, on that, um, on that area that your NFT is linked to, then you would get kind of stats and that would be updated and reflected in that NFT. And that they were these, uh, these tennis balls that were made from... Um, the colors were chosen by an algorithm, so kind of really cool digital initiative. And then the the championship winning point, if that landed there, you would actually get a physical tennis ball, basically replicating whatever your NFT was in a display case. So saying that not everyone who got these NFTs mm-hmm. would get that physical one. It was just this is an extra special thing. Um, so I think yep. for for sports franchises, teams, whatever else that is. Look at it in the same way that you would give uh, benefits to to your members or to your most loyal fans, and go: Is there a digital equivalent that I can do? And does that change if if a fan can't get to a stadium? I mean, this is something that we talked about last year. JB was if I've got fans in in Singapore and they're never going to make it to I don't know see Paris Saint Germain in person, mm-hmm. how can I still give them some sort of benefit that? Is digital in addition to maybe you know actual merch and things like that. Is is there something that I can add on as a layer to this? And NFTs um, offer that. It's our pleasure today to meet with Jason Bieber, coming directly from New York from the NBA. Hi, Jason. How are you doing today? Hey, JB. Doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. What I found very interesting, uh, Jason, is when I compare the, the culture in you know in US sports and organization, you can tell that within within the uh, the staff of um, the the NBA's NFL or you know any any governing bodies on your side of the pond, there's a lot of diversity in terms of professional background. From from a um, HR perspective, that they're, they're really trying to source talent from a lot of diverse background. Is, is that definitely something you see? And how do you think that impacts then? Um, uh, your, your, your day-to-day job, does he make the organization better to your eyes because just people have just more knowledge of what I think than just the subject they're actually going to work on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge focus for us. Um, and I would probably say one of the most important things in terms of us being able to be successful and to innovate. And so 
specifically for my team, if we're focused on growth areas and innovation for the MBA, having a team that has diverse backgrounds and experiences, um, having some inter- international experience, um, growing up in different backgrounds, it's just really important to be able to connect with the MBA in a different way uh, and explore different ideas. So um, I would say diversity of background, diversity of thought in terms of, of how they com- come to think about things is really important to us and, and really important to us being successful. I fully on, agree on that one, Matt. I think it's it's one of the also main differences in terms of rights holders, but the franchises and, and the leagues, how they are also recruiting. You mentioned also one thing, Jay, um, prior was the um, the connection or how you've been navigating during your time at Accenture with C-levels, so with, with top executives. I was wondering if I, if I go a bit now into the, the NBA and, and your role, but, and you mentioned the interview, I was thinking recently with, with Stern, but today with Adam, uh, was it part of your, of the reasons as well in terms of like, you know, top, top executives having a vision, being like fully innovative and pushing the boundaries and every staff to actually think differently to be innovative to be tech savvy and all of that was, was it part of the of the decision making process or is it something that you've seen since since your arrival in, in 2018 yes to all those questions so um <laughs> definitely part of my decision making process definitely part of the nba as a whole and the culture we have right and and you correctly mentioned starting with david and definitely continuing with adam there is just a push to always challenge the status quo to always push the boundaries and try new things to deliver a better fan experience. And um, I think that kind of permeates the entire company and and makes my job a lot easier, right? And so for me, taking a role on the strategy team and the innovation team um, and having um, executives and leaders like David and Adam that are supportive of that and pushing that um, allows me to do my job. Um, And I would say David and Adam for sure all of our executives, if you look at our team governors um, and how innovative and creative they are, both with their NBA teams and in whatever respective fields they operate in, um, I think mm-hmm. we're set up in a way that really allows us um, to push innovation. So it was a huge part of my decision and also a huge part of um, why I've enjoyed the role so much since I've been here. From a, a structural perspective, you know, how, how day to day, how, how does the, the NBA make sure the vision actually delivers operationally. Um, what's the what's the strategy to making sure that you know that sort of drips from the top to everyone and especially your team? Like I said, because we have this culture of innovation um, and everyone pushing innovation to kind of grow the league's business makes my job significantly easier and allows me to kind of coordinate across the NBA um, to push innovation. So I would say we take a decentralized approach to innovation. So every employee at the NBA is empowered and encouraged to push innovation. And I would say that's on this on this, Jason. So, sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm thinking because I had a similar role at WEFA. And I was like, I love the way the NBA is decentralized and having its own role. But is it something like, how do you make that happen? Is it that you give them like a 20% of their time on their own project? Or, or how, how does that translate? Just like Matt was saying, how does that cascade down? And how does that translate into your, your daily job? Um, so, no, I, I don't think it's directly incorporated in, in, 
any of the ways that, that, that you kind of mentioned. It's more just the culture and the, the DNA of the NBA. Mm-hmm. So in your expectations of your job, you are expected to innovate and push the boundaries. When you're working on a strategic project that might be more short term, you're encouraged to look at, are there other ways we should do things? Um, should we change things to better engage fans and, and grow the NBA? So it's 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 hard to kind of pull it out and say, we do this one thing that helps us with innovation. It is really, and you started with it with with coming from Adam, it's it's really in the DNA and expected as part of every job. Um, mm. And then what, what my team does is because we're fully dedicated and focused on strategic growth projects and innovation is dive in with employees and other groups to kind of help them generate their ideas and push them forward. Um, and, you know, we're a team of, of six people, um, so relatively small. Um, and so we are kind of able, because everyone's pushing innovation, to have a much broader reach and really pick and choose some places in, around the NBA to kind of work with different business units, different owners of initiatives, mm. push them forward. Um, and so I, I think that that's one thing that, that really helps us. And the, the, the other thing that I, that I didn't mention earlier um, when we talk about Adam and, and our governors is also our players, right? And so I think that's something you see with the NBA is how much our players are innovating um, how much they're they're kind of pushing boundaries in, in business and in other areas and, and really pushing us as well. And that partnership with the players um, and being able to work together on things like that, I think is also really part of, of what makes us successful in this space. Today, we have the pleasure of receiving Michael Brown. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm really good. Really good. Delighted to be here. Delighted to see you guys and to speak again um, and hear what's up in the world. Let's move on to the to, to tokenization because that's one of the big topics that we're all involved when you when you work in the digital space we're all looking at it with all the statements that we've been making over the last what 20 minutes now how would you approach it as a club how would I approach tokenization um, I think it very much depends on what kind of club I am what kind of sports organization I am right so if I'm if I'm a top tier team in a top tier league, so big six or 10 in, the, in England, Premier League, top four or five in Spain and so on, I would have one very different approach to, uh, to others. Right? So, so actually, let's simplify the question. Let's take the top 10. Uh, if you were one of the top 10, uh, top 20 European clubs. I would make damn sure I control as much of the rights as possible for as long as possible. That would be my, my starting point. Do so not- you would build internally your own... My own capability. I'm, now I'm partnering with somebody because if I'm Man United, I can't build a blockchain. So I need partners, but I want to control it. Right? I want to own the IP going forward. And the reason I say that is my take on tokenization is it should enable us to do what we dreamt of doing with Web 1 and Web 2. Right. So ultimately, what Web2 for me did was demonstrated that there is an enormous appetite for sport and sport content around the world 24-7. Right. Okay, it's changed how we consume it, but it never ends. It never ends. Yeah. But the only people who've really made money out of it are the social media channels. Yeah. I, I cannot think of a single sports organization team 
that can sit here today and say, I made millions of dollars directly from my social media. Yep. Which causes a problem internally because they are, they're all building media houses to create content, but it's a cost center. Right? And the way they justify it is against, well, my sponsor's spending X and I need to give him content to keep spending that money with me. Yeah. It, it's a funny thing. Let me chime in real quick. It feels like the clubs that want to become the media houses are approaching it like the broadcasters in the 2010s and aren't anticipating the future shift of the industry that broadcasters are going to try to are trying to go in the direction of. Yeah, 100%. And, and so to me, if you, you let's say you built your media house, and most of them are pretty good these days, but they're all much of the same. Right, you know, they're, they're hiring the same people. They're hiring the same things. I always laugh whenever Man United refer to themselves as a media company, and you go, "But your media company makes ten million dollars a year." Yeah. I know that because you're a public company and you report it. Um, but you generate six hundred million, so clearly you're a sponsorship, licensing, and ticketing business yeah. with a sidebar on media. Um, and until your CEO came from Disney, I'm not going to believe you. Yeah, I, that would be. The pivot, you go, whoa, okay, that's different. But again, I think if if social media has demonstrated all ages across all different platforms want sports content, then Web3 should ha allow us to go, okay, because all media, all forms of media can be tokenized. So now you have a choice of how you want to monetize it, right? Yeah. So it's not just about distribution. Now it can be about ownership. It can be about monetization. Um, some of it should be lost leader. Some of it should still be fill the funnel, which is Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, right? But where's the funnel go? At the moment, the funnel doesn't go anywhere, right? Yeah. Hopefully, And there is no answer yet on Web3 because we're so new on it. We're all trying to figure it out. So I'm not going to pontificate on what this is the answer. What I want to see, and this goes to your questions around innovation, is people try, right? And, and you're going to make a, a few mistakes, right? The problem with sport is your, your mistake will play out in public. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Mark and Andrew from IMG Arena. Hi, gents. Hi there. Hi, good to be here. So from the moment you capture the data point on site to the moment you deliver on the end platform of the customer is probably the hardest and, and, and most essential journey. Would it be fair to say that because you nailed that workflow, you then started from there building all the additional services around those around those data points, because one, you had to advise on how to capitalize on those data points more extensively. And then somehow the other services around them were just natural evolutions of the company. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you tackle the latency, if you, you tackle the, the delivery, and if you're using the correct sort of technology, I mean, like technology is playing a huge part in our business now. Um, look, obviously, when we were, like, we went back to sort of, um, Let's, let's call it ground zero where myself and Mark were. Yes, there was technology and we thought we had the best technology in terms of collecting the data from the umpire's chair and, and passing that through to, to bookmakers, right? But actually, when we sit back and look at that level of technology and that level of, of delivery that we had back then, it was simple. It's simplistic. You're working within a confined environment. You're working um, 
in yeah in a place that is is consistent and there's only a few actions that you'll need to need to capture we're moving into golf which was obviously a a huge project of of ours um you're on a golf course 18 holes variable weather conditions variable connection um conditions like there's there's no hard wire right we we actually ended up sort of over engineering it so we had four different um ways in which we would receive the data just to make sure that we had four levels of redundancy um, and essentially all these pieces of technology were kind of tasked with with getting the the result there as quickly as possible with a bit of information there as quickly as possible so yeah you're, you're absolutely right if you can tackle that and you can have the reliable source of data then actually your products become easier right because what no one wants to see from a fan perspective is feeds going i mean i mean if you if we look at people that, that, that were um, sort of competitors and and people that we work with in the industry, when feeds go down or streaming feeds go down, the the, the backlash you get or the experience that you get is, is not pleasant, right? So making sure that you can consistently provide the uptime and the information that, that people want and people can have at their fingertips right now um, is definitely the most, most important thing and where we've been able to sort of really build out the product set that we've got. Hello, Pierre. How are you doing? Hey, hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Pretty glad to be here. Doing very well. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Pierre Trochet. I'm, I'm 36 uh, years old, nearly 37. Um, I, I was lucky enough that I could spend a lot of my life uh, so far traveling around Europe and over the world uh, because of football. American football. For most Europeans, it's, it's a game that few understand or that is played by and only for... American or North American uh, audiences, but the reality is that it's it's played today in more than a hundred countries. And um, of the four hundred million NFL fans, actually two hundred sixteen million live outside the United States. And so, uh, could you could you tell us why why this sport is so popular or wh- why those big numbers? I think that um, you can you can clearly see a real hype. Around around football and, and flag football over over the last few years, a bit before COVID, and and, and of course uh, a lot more. I mean, you, you spoke briefly about France, for example. We are one of the uh, very tiny numbers of federation that beat again a record of, of members just right after COVID, being down forty percent and breaking down the forty five the, the twenty five thousand members barrier once more uh, right after COVID. So. There's a hype that goes around this game because, of course, of the full marketing leverage of of the, of the National Football League. But it's it's also because for a while now you have a real link between how our society is moving uh, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of uh, um, uh, social media, in terms of consuming contents. Um, obviously, <laughs> obviously, you know that better than me. I'm, I'm talking to someone that's probably convinced about it, but. Um, I think I think the, the of course the North American league are really an advance uh, on that uh, compared to to some European uh, professional club or league. But you you brought something more out of it, which is which is about the lifestyle, which is how you identify yourself as a fan um, to the athletes, but also to the brand that he carries and to the whole show that come with it. I mean, you have to understand for, globally for the audience that would discover American football, especially in Europe, when we talk about the halftime Super Bowl uh, concert. We talk about the biggest, somehow, 15, 20 minutes of the year in the world of music. Um, this is this is like 
you you talk about those huge concert at you know at stadium and Allianz Arena whatever but the biggest stage on earth is the 15 20 minutes halftime show for example so it shows you all the all the power of attraction i mean just uh, you know speaking speaking with with uh, um, some friends at, at the NFL after the announcement of Ryan you are in less than 2 hours you are top trend in the world because we talk about the super bowl and we talk about those those uh, star appeal and you talk about those brands that that actually come with it and the and the whole show um so it's it's a different way of of consuming sports that is more and more coming into europe like there's a game happening but you're here for the whole day you're here for enjoying like a like a party like a festival which is more a genzen way of consuming the sports product um i know i know in europe this this turnaround is is very complicated and somehow we are very conservative about it um at, at, at a very humble level but be you know being in charge of organizing in france for for the fffa for example and we try to get a a, a touch of event uh, around around national team for example or around the diamond ball which is a championship game but you see it's it's another way to to consume the product so you have to be innovative and and if there's if there's somewhere the national football league are one of the best in the world is innovation we talk about genstat we talk about the deal with Nicola Deon about uh, uh, youth youth broadcast and they they slime the entire hand zone for example uh, on TV um, you know you you have to be you you have to be very sure about your business to to try those those innovation and somehow it works so far every first down the try was was a success so you have you have a hype going going around it so my name's Andrew Ryan I'm the managing director of FIBA Media FIBA Media was it was set up to monetize the national team competitions exclusively there's some some add-ons that we have in terms of um, access to club content for certain purposes, but it's it's basically exclusively um, for the monetization of national team basketball. Um, <clears throat> for a period of time, when the BCL first started, we we supported that venture in terms of helping with their sales processes because we obviously had a lot of relationships already set up um, mm-hmm. and worked with that team to try to push the competition along for the first sort of four or five years of its uh, existence, uh, they're now working with a dedicated external agency who looks after both their commercial media rights and their commercial sponsorship rights as a single package, which is not something that we were we were set up to do in the first place. So it, it absolutely does come from the national team basketball. I think where we probably differ quite materially from the likes of UEFA or FIFA or anyone in the football world for that matter is that because of the one one FIBA concept, which essentially brings all of the different governance elements under the one umbrella, mm-hmm. we not only have access to the global events in terms of the Men's and Women's World Cup, the Olympic qualifiers, the uh, underage global events, but also the continental events. So we will we will sell to the same broadcasters most of the time, Eurobasket, the Asia Cup, Afrobasket, America, and qualifiers for those events as well. And what that allows us to do is both have have ways that we can we can optimize packages for broadcasters in particular territories. So good example is a lot of countries in Europe where the team they have strong basketball tradition or they have strong basketball team that team may not necessarily get to the world cup ever or or frequently but they'll be a strong Eurobasket team so the fact that we actually have access to all of that content means that we've almost got a you know a, 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 a line that we can throw out to, to almost every every territory in the world and the second part is that 
we have it's not quite a 12 month a year calendar of content but it's not shockingly far off it for for an international federation property and that's something that probably most international federations aren't able to offer because of that usual distinction between things being run regionally as against globally yeah that's super interesting and that you know the more power to the international federation that really centralizes and that does have that visibility on all the continental activities because you know as you're looking to develop the the, the basketball fan the more leverage and the more data sources you have from all the data uh, from all the t- territories, uh, the stronger to it because we see that in football, it's not necessarily that easy between the in, you know the international federations and the confederations. Um, so that's actually a, a huge element of development that has a lot of commercial value beyond the beyond the practice of the sport, right? Yeah, completely. And I, th- and I think for fans, it's a better situation as well too. I mean, fans who follow international basketball or, or want to follow top level basketball generally have a pretty good idea of which broadcaster is going to carry those games because it's all coming underneath the the one banner. Um, they know that they can follow both continental and global events through the FIBA social accounts, for instance. It's not necessarily having to have this big mishmash of, you know, yeah. where do I find the European qualifiers? Then where do I go for, for you know, the European championship? And then I've got to go to someone else for the, for the World Cup. Um, and obviously, you know, football is a few steps ahead of basketball in terms of in terms of pure global fandom, uh, and obviously in, in, in a number of countries anyway. Uh, so, you know, whether that's a massive, massive issue for them is another question. But I, as a, as a basketball fan, you know, has sat out sat outside FIBA as you know just an onlooker. I've always very much appreciated that relatively coordinated approach to both the the continental and global events. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? I'm great, JB. Great to be on. Thank you very much for the invitation. Maybe that's something we'll touch upon afterwards in terms of like your new role as, I think, Director of Development within CONCACAF. Uh, but looking at this transition period is like, what what have you realized that you were missing, missing? Or, I mean, you talked about the governance or the opportunity also to educate yourself. It's like, I mean, you've been a player for, for almost two, 20 years. And at the end of your career, you realize you're missing so many stuff or I don't know, like to, to be part of, of the governance or to be part of the administration of the, of this beautiful game is like, what did you realize was missing? Because at the same time, I know that you have a foundation. So I guess also you educated yourself around how you manage an association or, or kind of a foundation, how you make that work. But at the same time, you must have realized like, okay, I don't necessarily have the, I don't know if it's the keys or the understanding or or the tricks to actually navigate within this ecosystem. So I realized very quickly, and I think it wasn't a realization, it was a knowledge. I knew that there was gaps, Mm -hmm. of course, in my experience and and my knowledge uh, that can be fixed by education. You can you can educate yourself and always have that mindset of wanting to improve and wanting to be open to learning new things. I think there also was a gap in being part of an organization, whether that's working at a certain stage and working your way up and, and learning things on that journey. Uh, whilst I was playing football, uh, many other people were in organizations learning those lessons of building relationships and, 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 and learning about a corporate structure and governance, of course. But I also realized quite quickly that there were things that I learned on the pitch that were transferable 
in the environment of the business of sport and the business of football and the governance of mm -hmm. football, whether that's about building relationships, whether that's about understanding how to lead a team of individuals towards your aims and objectives, dealing with failure. Uh, Speaking so different languages. Things. Speaking different languages, which I haven't done, and I'm embarrassed that some of my <laughs> colleagues in my dressing room would speak seven languages, and I just about spoke English at a at a grade six level. So, but what was, you have is like the the capacity to adapt to any culture or anybody. That's something that all football players have, though. No, I think the dressing room gives you those skills because it's it became a place where everybody virtually certainly in the UK was of the same background, maybe racial divides or, or, or whether you was from England, Scotland, Ireland. And then it became a very cosmopolitan place with people from all over the world with different cultures. And you had to learn how to operate and make people comfortable and try to try to get towards the aim and objective of winning a football match, creating an environment where it was comfortable for everybody when some didn't even speak the language. But I realized that I had learned a lot through that experience and the foundation, as you mentioned, JB, there was a real moment for me when as a footballer, you walk into a room and mostly people want something from you. They want your attention. They want to talk to you about something. Yeah. They want to sell you something. Your wealth. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, or they want an autograph, whatever it may be. Mm. And I found with the foundation that actually I was being introduced to rooms where I wanted something from the room whether that was a platform to discuss the aims of my foundation, whether it was trying to find corporate or, or other non-for-profit support, or whether it was just trying to advocate for sport, for social change and my foundation and what football does for the community, the country, the world. And I realized that um, that was something that was really a purpose for me and the skill set that I, I, I seem to do relatively well in and the, the, the success of my foundation was really testament to that. And of course, the hard work of all the volunteers, all the staff who, who have bought into what we have created with the foundation. Today, we have the pleasure of receiving Clint. Hi, Clint. It's a pleasure being here. Hi, how are you going? If we look at the sports Australian landscape, what are the most innovative organizations? Who, who is driving change in the region of Australia? That's a very good question. Some of the, some of the most fascinating companies. Sport, for many, many, many years, Australian sport uh, is very um, synonymous with sports science and a lot of sports medicine. We gen a lot of Australian Australians do export a lot of that expertise uh, in the sports science, sports physiotherapy, all those kinds of fields, sports medicine. Uh, so that, therefore, the the most common common company that people tend to tend to there from there is they go catapult. That's probably the one of the more famous Australian sporting companies based on the pedigree of research, sports science, and um, athlete and player tracking. That's one of so that's one of the bigger ones. Now let's let's have a look at some. Let's have a think about some other ones. Um, you got Volt see, and then on that on that tip, you've got Volt Performance. Um, they do a lot of um, muscle stress testing, and they've taken on a lot of clients in through Europe, UK, North America. Again, on the sports science tip, and the other way around for. Um the CEO of a startup listening to us, who should he address if he wanted to penetrate the Australian market? Interesting question because for a long time, the Australian sporting market and landscape 
pretty much reflected a very UK type of structure. Uh, it still holds very much very true, but the, then the way it runs now, there's a lot of independence. So there's a bit of a, there's a bit more of a, an Americanization. It's almost a hybrid in some ways. You'd almost go, it's almost a hybrid. But if you're going to, you can go, so you can go club to club to club if you wanted to pick up, if you wanted to test out particular products, or if, you t- if you're talking something like a, a cricket or something like that, the governing body is the governing body, which is Cricket Australia mm-hmm. or something like that, or even a state-based one, they generally become the go-to as well. So it's usually, yeah. it's a cross between governing body, league, club. Uh, there's no, there is actually, there's no set way because it's, those are the three ways. So it's usually club-based, governing body, and then it's uh, governing body, and then it's, yeah, say organisation or league-based, so league or head office-based. It's, yeah. it's, I've seen good use cases out of, all, uh, of companies doing all three. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Barry. Uh, I am Scottish born and bred, come from Glasgow, and I've been working in sport, media, technology, and digital for a long time now, more than 20 years. And to get at the second, you know, second uh, pillar of your, uh, of your mission over there, which is the strategic aspect on, in terms of content and in terms of proprietary platforms versus social media platforms. What are the big trends that you are seeing from your angle uh, running strategy uh, of content for those types of organizations? Yeah, it's yeah, that, that's a broad topic. Um, the I think it's really important to our model and to the, the, the type of clients that we work with, like Extreme E and Formula E and others, that before you point a camera anywhere, before you send a production crew anywhere, there's a lot of work that we do around strategy audience insights, understanding different audiences and different segmentation of audiences and what platforms they use and where they're likely to be. Um, and and so we, we, we effectively, what we're doing with clients like that is we're developing formats rather than simply providing coverage. So it's no longer enough just to simply film a live sport and hand it over and get have it go out on a broadcaster or a, or a streaming platform. Um, you, you have to understand different audiences' behavior and different types of content. So we spend a lot of time in the, the, the sort of upfront strategy and then translating that into editorial topics and an editorial schedule. So the type of things that we want to talk about married to the type of platforms that we want to the content to be distributed on. Um, that that piece of the whole um, element of what we do is absolutely crucial. And to, to answer your point about proprietary platforms versus social media, it, it really, it, it, it's it's not one or the other. Yeah, It's understanding how do you use both in a complementary manner um, that moves um, people from being perhaps passive viewers of a sport into active fans of a sport. And um, you, you can't, you know, a brand cannot lock stuff away on a proprietary platform and ignore social media because that's where the audience is. And you need to create yeah. elements of your content that travel out to where fans are and where they're likely to be engaging with it. Um, and the type of content that works on um, social media platforms has to take into account 
the algorithms of those platforms, what's likely to work, what's you know what what's going to work in TikTok is going to be very different to what works on YouTube or Facebook, etc. Um, but then equally, um, I think it's really important for sports organisations not to just build what they're doing on social media and yep. to find ways to more deeply engage fans in their own environment and their own proprietary platforms. And that's for a whole host of reasons, one of which is I think it's important for any sports organisation to own um, an element of their own data um, and to have a direct connection with their yep. fans. I think, I think just j- jumping off that particular remark, and we can go back to the rest, but that's exactly the example of Barcelona and Spotify, right? Like in terms yeah. of the size of the deals and, uh, you know, uh, Barcelona claiming 500 million uh, fans and actually having uh, apparently, and that those are just uh, numbers from, you know, public uh, publications, but um, yeah. around having only around 1 million qualified uh, users on their platforms, which is massively different when we're looking at, entertainment industries that require good knowledge of the users to be in control. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that that particular case has been written about a lot. And, you know, it's a little bit like, Samuel, if you if I tell you I'm really popular because I've got 500 friends and then you ask me to name them and I can't give you them, <laughs> I, can only, I can only give you the names of three people, you might conclude, well, maybe you're not as popular as you think. But, yeah, but yeah the, the point being that it's really important Um to use social media to build reach and engagement and 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 convert viewers into fans, but then to find the right appropriate ways that add value to the fan relationship by bringing them into your own environment. So for some organizations, that would be the whole you know, extreme of their own streaming platforms and their own OTT platforms. That's not not necessarily right for every um, sports brand, but um, but equally, the, the, there are many other ways to to bring um, fans into a direct relationship and to to drive data capture. It's yeah. not data capture just for the sake of it, not just to spam people with emails. It's more to understand who your fans are and to therefore develop appropriate experiences and opportunities um, for those fans. And yeah, so I think that that the, the organisations that are doing it the best are have an instinctive understanding of how to use social media yeah. um, a, a great understanding of how to use live broadcast the core sort of central pillar of the sport but also have a really good understanding of how to engage fans with through a direct relationship um and yeah. underpinned by first party data hi Mashar, how are you doing Good, JB. Thanks for having me on. Um, pleasure to chat. I've spent my career in sport. Um, primarily in tennis for the last two decades. I wanted to to have a bit of your vision on what would be the, your, your three favorite technologies uh, for, for those that you see a great future for. You mentioned kind of your, your business is also meant to focus on what's coming next, a bit horizon mm-hmm. five, 10 years. What, what are the three favorite technologies you are looking at today where, for which you see like the biggest impact? Um, (laughs) crystal ball well uh, i kind of uh, would immediately play into those that we've invested in right so Mm -hmm. but at the risk of it being an an advertisement for what wildcard does maybe i can no no it's okay no i was going to say i can answer it if i was to rewind the clock and look forward i reckon comment on some of the most um uh, wonderful technologies that the world of sports kind of seen over the last, call it somewhere between five and 15 years. And I was going to say 
the three that really jump off the page to me uh, for different reasons. Um, one's home court, so what the guys out of the US have done in the basketball space mm-hmm. in terms of activating, using a technology to activate um, and connect with an adolescent group and allow them to interact with technology in a way that's really engaging and has the potential to develop skill. It just I don't think it had been done at that scale before, so I love that. I loved what Catapult did, which was an Australian business, in terms of normalising the data conversation in professional sport. So I just loved it, just thought that, um, and that had been a long time in the making. But now people don't, well, professional sports athletes don't think twice. Um, tennis is a little bit different, but certainly team sports don't think <laughs> twice about sensor, right? It's just, um, so they've completely changed the paradigm in, in pro sport or led the way in doing it. And then the third one, ironically enough, is a little closer to home in, in Hawkeye. And these guys, both from an officiating point of view as a starting point, but equally broadcast, they were real trailblazers and they've paved the way for a bunch of others to try and come into market and add additional value. So in the rear view, they're the ones that really jump off the page for me um, when I think about, you know, three of my favourite kind of Technologies in the world of sport and entertainment. I just go, wow, what, what those groups have done. It's kind yeah. of game changing. And we kind of use that term loosely, but it genuinely is. It's been transformative. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io, to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le Corner.